Hey nerds, guess what? As of today, I have read and recorded audio of all 59 majority opinions issued by the Supreme Court during the October 2022 term, which just wrapped up in June. And you have all listened. And that, whether you listen to just one episode or all of them, is extraordinary. I mean, as important as they are, SCOTUS opinions aren't exactly easy listening. So thank you. As I mentioned in the fall update, a new term has begun at the court, and since I've finished reading the last of the opinions issued in June, there's nothing keeping us from starting a whole new season. So you can consider this episode Season 3, Episode 1 of What SCOTUS Wrote Us. The second session of the court's new term just began on October 30th. So things are well underway, and the court has heard oral arguments in several cases, audio of which can be accessed on supremecourt.gov. As we saw last term, this court seems to issue the first of its opinions much later than other courts in the past. So until the first opinions start coming in, I plan to read some past opinions that are relevant to some of the cases on the docket this term or relevant to current events. I also plan to continue reading the occasional opinion relating to orders, which can come in at any time. But one thing I've almost entirely eliminated on the podcast is the episode introduction, in which I lay out the facts of the case and sometimes offer a summary of the new opinion. Now, I've done this mostly because of time constraints. I know it's better to use my time to add more opinions to the library than to restate facts that will be provided at the beginning of the opinion anyway. Also, because as a political scientist who has conducted my fair share of research, I know how easy it is for my own bias to unintentionally color the introductions with my own views about the case. The purpose of this podcast is to bring you the court's opinions, not mine. That being said, I will provide introductions when reading past opinions that are relevant to current cases on the docket or current events in order to provide a little context and give you an idea why I chose to read that particular case from the past. As I promised in the fall update, I'd like to go over a short list of some of the higher profile cases that were granted cert this term and any themes that seem to present themselves. Now, from a 30,000-foot view, I can't help but notice the number of cases regarding some administrative functions of the federal government, in particular, the power of administrative agencies of the government within the executive branch. You might hear people refer to this type of power as regulatory power or the administrative state. The outcome of these cases could alter the way the federal government operates and change the power dynamics between the three branches of government. Cases like Loper Bright Enterprises v. Raimondo, Securities and Exchange Commission v. Jarkissi, and Consumer Financial Protection Bureau v. Community Financial Services Association of America. Let's start with Loper Bright Enterprises v. Raimondo. 
Now, this is one of those cases that threatens to overturn the precedent of another earlier decision by the court. So, since you kind of have to know about that earlier case in order to understand what's going on in the current case, bear with me just a moment while I briefly explain the older case at issue here. In the landmark 1984 case Chevron v. Natural Resources Defense Council, Inc., or NRDC, the court established what is known as the most frequently cited case in U.S. administrative law, and it's the origin of the term Chevron deference, referring to a legal doctrine that compels federal courts to defer to a federal agency's interpretation of statutes in which Congress was not completely clear about how that agency should administer the statute in question. Several cases decided in the past decade or so have limited the scope of agency actions that are entitled to Chevron deference, reiterating that although agency rules and regulations having the force of law are still entitled to Chevron deference. Less formal documents like agency letters, memos, and regulations not subject to notice and comment should receive less deference. Okay, so that's Chevron. Going back to the case we were just talking about, Loper Bright Enterprises v. Raimondo. It involves a law that requires fishing boats in the northern Atlantic Ocean to have special outside observers on board. The question in this case is specifically, who is responsible for paying for these observers? The government or the fishing boats? The statute doesn't clearly say. But the agency who administers the statute, National Marine Fisheries Service, says the fishing boats must foot the bill. The lower court in this case said that this was a reasonable interpretation under Chevron. But you might recall that all the way back in 1803, the Supreme Court said in Marbury v. Madison that it is the duty of the courts to say what the law is, not government agencies or the administrative law judges or ALJs within those agencies. On the other hand, Many assert that overturning Chevron would put all of the cases that would normally go before ALJs, who are experts in their area of agency administration, before federal courts, who in many circumstances know next to nothing about the duties and administration of the particular agencies involved in the types of cases handled by ALJs. And therefore, the courts would not only be less capable of making the best informed decisions in each case, they would be overburdened with the number of administrative law cases that would suddenly appear on their dockets. The next case with this theme is Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, v. Jarkasi. While we are on the topic of ALJs, the Securities and Exchange Commission is one of those executive branch agencies that have administrative law judges. And recently, the Supreme Court has decided cases questioning the constitutionality of ALJs. For example, in 2018, in Lucia v. SEC, the court was asked whether ALJs of the SEC were considered to be officers of the United States within the meaning of the Appointments Clause. 
and a 7-2 court said that they are. And in April of this year, in SEC v. Cochran, the court was asked whether a federal district court has jurisdiction to consider claims challenging the constitutionality of the SEC's administrative proceedings. And the court said, sure, the Federal Trade Commission Act and the Securities Exchange Act didn't do away with district court's ordinary federal question subject matter jurisdiction. Depending on certain factors to determine whether particular claims concerning agency action are of the type Congress intended to be reviewed within the statutory structure and thus preclude district court jurisdiction. But this case holds a similar question up to a different part of the Constitution. This time, the court is asked whether the statutory scheme that empowers the SEC's administrative law judges violates the Seventh Amendment, the non-delegation doctrine, or Article II of the U.S. Constitution, rather than just the Appointments Clause, as was the case with Lucia v. SEC. The question whether parties in cases like these have the right to a jury in a federal court of law rather than receiving a ruling from an ALJ within the agency can be seen as an issue of checks and balances. Then again, the court in SEC v. Cochran held that the judicial branch indeed may check the findings of an executive branch ALJ when it involves a federal question. So we'll have to wait and see what the court says in this case. The third case on the docket this term with this theme is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, the Community Financial Services Association of America. Now this case presents a challenge to the mechanism for funding of the agency. Normally, when Congress passes a law, any necessary funding is appropriated within the statute. But in this case, Congress said that in lieu of appropriations, funding for the agency would come from fees generated by the Federal Reserve, which turns out to be an almost unlimited pool of funding available for the agency to dip into. Whereas, if the agency had to go back to Congress each year to ask for appropriations, there would be greater transparency between the agency and Congress when it comes to the agency's spending. On the other side, the Solicitor General commented that a ruling in this case against the CFPB could threaten the validity of virtually all past CFPB actions, including many that are critical to consumers in the financial industry. Okay, let's move on from this administrative theme to the second theme that I see even more frequently on the docket this term, which is the First Amendment. And almost all of those cases concern the internet and social media, The one exception is Vidal v. Elster, which asks the court whether the refusal to register a trademark under 15 U.S.C. section 1052C when the mark contains criticism of a government official or public figure violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. As I read some of the details about the case, It honestly seems to be less about government officials and public figures as it is about non-consenting living individuals. Let me explain. 
Back in 2018, Steve Elster tried to register the phrase Trump too small for use on various products that were intended to serve as political commentary on then-President Donald Trump and his policies. The Patent and Trademark Office, or PTO, rejected the application, citing two sections of the Lanham Act. Section 2C, which prohibits registering a trademark that identifies a living individual without their consent, and Section 2A, which bars marks that falsely suggest a connection with living or dead persons. Elster appealed the rejection, arguing that the Lanham Act provisions cited in the rejection infringed on his First Amendment rights and were not narrowly tailored to serve a compelling government interest. The decision on appeal was upheld based solely on Section 2C of the Lanham Act, which prohibits registering a mark that identifies a living individual without their consent. In other words, the application was rejected not because Donald Trump was a government official or a public figure, but because Donald Trump was alive and did not give his consent at the time of application. Some other prominent First Amendment cases on the docket so far this term involve the internet and social media, and they are O'Connor Radcliffe v. Garnier, Murphy v. Missouri, NetChoice LLC v. Paxton, Moody v. NetChoice LLC, and Lindkey v. Freed. Moving beyond these larger themes are two more cases worth mentioning. United States v. Rahimi, and Alexander v. South Carolina Conference of the NAACP. United States v. Rahimi will be the first Second Amendment case the court has heard since New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin decided the term before last, which happened to be one of the first opinions that I read on this podcast. And one last case with significant political implications is Alexander v. South Carolina Conference of the NAACP, another case about racial gerrymandering, which was a huge theme last term as well. If you're interested in precedent for this case, you can find a good selection of opinions on this topic within the podcast library of past cases. Well, that's it. You can count on me reading some old opinions that provide precedent for the cases on the docket this term. That is, until new opinions start coming in. I hope that this season preview provided you with some helpful information for the term ahead. And as always, I would like to thank each and every one of you for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.